This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 22, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Liberty as a political value allows people in civil society to discover and cultivate their character. Ah, but without people of character, liberty cannot persist. That from Lawrence Reed, president of the Foundation for Economic Education. We talk today about the relative values of character education and appreciation for a free society. You make a big push on behalf of character education within uh, the libertarian movement. And it's so much so you're well known among libertarians' seven principles of sound public policy. You've changed the last one from liberty makes all the difference to character makes all the difference. So why is uh, character such an important principle when it comes to public policy? I don't think of people of unsound character, people who don't practice such virtues as honesty, intellectual humility, courage, patience, responsibility, and so forth. I don't think people who lack those virtues can possibly make good policy. Uh, and so many of the poor policies that uh, we've put in place, for which we're paying an awful price in many forms, are the direct result of uh, uh, the erosion of character or the lack of considering the impact on character that such policies have. So I think liberty and character are really two sides of the same coin. All right. So is that it, it seems to me then that that is uh, at best sort of a chicken and egg problem because, you know, Adam Smith wrote about how we treat each other. We don't just want to be loved. We want to be lovely. And uh, he sort of... Uh, turned sort of pop morality on its head. You know, it, like I, I say, tell people the theory of moral sentiments, if it were released today, would be a very popular pop morality book yes. because it doesn't say, here's why you should be kind. It says, why are we kind? Yeah. Why are we good to people around us? So is character, uh, as Adam Smith lays it out in your view, is it an emergent phenomenon the way that, that he puts it? Yes, emergent in the sense that it is not centrally planned. It is uh, the result of people recognizing that uh, there are and must be certain values in uh, how we treat each other. Uh, I think the uh, uh, an important thrust of the Enlightenment period and the period after it uh, really was a recognition that, hey, individuals really are valuable, they're unique, they're precious, they deserve to be treated uh, in, in uh, you know, very uplifting, respectful ways. Uh, that's an outgrowth of the understanding that character is important. When you lose character or lose the uh, respect for it, I don't see how liberty can survive. So it, it's if, if character is an emergent phenomenon, mm -hmm. and as you point out, I think rightfully, that without liberty, your character will never be revealed or it may never develop. Yeah. Why put character uh, ahead of liberty? Not, I'm not disagreeing with yeah. what you're saying, but, but why that emphasis versus saying, you know, if we have liberty, then we can reap all the benefits that civil society yeah. uh, give us. Well, I put liberty and character at, at nearly the same levels. If I seem to emphasize character sometimes more, it would be because I really think that uh, character, um, if you lose that, liberty is not possible. And so for that reason, uh, it, it is a precondition, I think, for liberty. Uh, people who don't practice the kinds of traits that I talk about when I refer to character, 
they're just not going to be uh, the kind of people who in public office will support policies for everybody for the long run. Uh, they'll be they'll, instead they'll be short term uh, Rob Peter to pay Paul people. Uh, so I don't know if that's a good answer. It's still a bit of a struggle in my mind as to chicken or the egg. Uh, they're that closely identified in my mind, liberty and character. Now, I've, I've always viewed that uh, libertarians obviously emphasize liberty. And, and for me, it has always seemed that conservatives emphasize the importance of institutions that liberty helped create. Yeah. And uh, by doing that, it almost seems as if uh, they are taking what liberty created as a given and emphasizing that when they should be emphasizing the system that gave us those important and valuable and long-standing institutions. Well, that's right. And, and they should even step back a step further to realize that uh, it's individuals that make the world go round. It's individuals that create those institutions that you're referring to. And if we don't have a fundamental recognition of the uniqueness, the preciousness of individuals and respect for their freedom of choice, uh, uh, I don't think you're going to have institutions uh, that are worth saving or worth keeping or worth advancing. One of the things that uh, you talk about in your uh, seven principles speech, and it's widely available on the internet, Google uh, Lawrence Reed or Larry Reed and seven principles of sound public policy, and you'll uh, get some version of, of, of the speech. Uh, one of the things that you uh, talk about in that speech was uh, you know, President Obama in 2012 made this very famous, uh, you didn't build that comment. I think when it comes to Obama's remark, you didn't build that, uh, I'm bothered by that on many accounts. But uh, for one reason, I think it's objectionable because he only applies it in one direction. Uh, he tells the private sector, private entrepreneurs, you didn't build that, which is his way of saying you should thank government uh, for at least part of your success. He never applies it uh, in the other direction. He never says, well, government owes its success or, if, or its, you know, whatever it decides to do or spend or build uh, to the private sector because it doesn't have a nickel uh, to do anything except what it first takes from others. So. Um, it's like, hey, we should say to the government, you didn't build that either. And you couldn't have if it hadn't been for private people that you had to take money from. I am a Quaker. I attend. And uh, perhaps it's unique in the sense that it is the friends meeting. People pride themselves on their support for non-coercion. Uh, and it has a friends meeting. It also happens to be in the seat of power in the United States and quite possibly the world. So there is this constant tension in my mind uh, that to support coercion and be a good friend, be a good pacifist, be a good Quaker, they're in tension and, and they necessarily are. So uh, when I hear uh, progressives talk about Jesus, for example, they say, well, he was for all of these wonderful things that progressives support like uh, redistribution and that sort of thing. What is your rejoinder to them? I think Jesus was not in any sense a progressive or socialist or redistributionist. Uh, those folks, the progressives, the redistributionists, the socialists, they use government to take from some to give to others. Uh, Christ talked about helping people from one's heart and one's conscience and from one's own pocketbook. He never once suggested that Caring for others was a responsibility of government, that we should take from some to give to others to, to fix that purpose. Um, and there are endless examples uh, to demonstrate this. 
in uh, Luke 12, 13 through 15, a man comes up to Christ and actually says, Master, speak to my brother that he divideth the inheritance with me. In other words, hey, I'm unhappy here with the redistribution, with the distribution of wealth. Will you do a little redistributing on my behalf? And Christ uh, re- responds by saying, man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he takes the man to task for his envy and covetousness. So there's, uh, you know, Jesus himself, say, who could have at the wave of his hand equalized their incomes, but he chose to upbraid the man uh, for his envy and covetousness. So where do you think that, uh, that idea comes from then? Well, you know, Jesus talks about the importance of things like generosity and caring for others, being responsible, taking care of your family. And a lot of people conflate that with the state. They think, well, here's the state with all sorts of programs. Well, then he – to do those things, maybe – so he would therefore be in favor of that. The key question is, well, did he ever advocate the use of force to accomplish the aid uh, that he wanted others to – needy persons to receive? He never did. He thought it was a, uh, a matter for one's personal conscience. Uh, take the story of the Good Samaritan. What's the lesson of that? Uh, here's a man walking along a road. He comes upon another man who's been robbed and beaten and uh, nearly within an inch of his life. And the Good Samaritan, as we now know of him, uh, did not say to the man, well, you need to check in with your welfare department or you need to you know, get a hold of the emperor. Maybe he can do something for you. He's known as the Good Samaritan because without hesitation, he helped the man himself. We would think of him today as the good-for-nothing Samaritan if he had simply walked away and said, your problem is government's responsibility. Lawrence Reed is president of the Foundation for Economic Education. Download the Cato Audio app for your iPhone or iPad and listen to all six of the Cato Institute's podcasts. Learn more at cato.org.